You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. In recent months, I've been thinking a lot about the qualities that make someone an artist. How do we not only value the work of artists in our communities, but also the power of arts as a driving force behind building and uniting our communities? And how do we integrate arts into our daily lives, particularly if some of us don't consider ourselves as naturally creative people? Well, Elizabeth D'Souza is someone who's been exploring these questions and ideas in depth for over two decades through her work as an interdisciplinary artist, writer, and educator. Her work and research explores the mysterious link between artistic genius, culture, and mental health, with a special interest in the arts of the African diaspora. She is currently working on a forthcoming book, exhibition, and film that explores these issues through the life and art of her late father, Bunch Washington, a visionary Black American visual artist and Baha'i. Bunch Washington is best known for the critically acclaimed book which he wrote in 1973 about his mentor titled The Art of Romare Bairdon, The Prevalence of Ritual. In this interview, Liz and I will discuss what it means to be an artist in today's world. We'll also explore the differences, limitations, and benefits of performance-based and communal-based creative practices, and how they impact the way we relate to, interact with, and perceive art and the artist behind the work. We'll also reflect on the value that is placed on arts and artists from the perspective of the Baha'i writings and the benefits of a graceful integration of the arts into our daily lives and communities, regardless of our own creative capacity. Liz, thank you so much for joining us on Cloud9. I'm really excited about this topic that we're going to be discussing today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So Liz, I'd love to start a conversation by talking about artists. In my own experience, I've witnessed that there is really a wide spectrum of understanding surrounding who an artist is and what they do, and really establishing a point of difference between hobbyists and those who are pursuing it as a profession. I'd say that many people consider themselves as creatives, but few are pursuing art as their primary career or source of income. Then there's also this subgroup of professional artists who are technically trained, and those folks often like to separate themselves or create a point of difference from those who are innately talented. So my question to you is, after taking everything that I've just said into consideration, is it possible to define an artist and how do you define what an artist is or does? Hmm. Well, the short answer, I think, to that in my mind is that an artist is someone who must create art. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Um, categories that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, somebody who has been trained versus somebody who does it as a hobby. I would say that there's merit in training, of course, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a quote that I like to go back to from Romare Bearden, who was a one of our great artists that this country produced, and he said, academic life doesn't create art or doesn't produce art. I don't remember the exact quote, but he, somebody who was very well trained in art, found the need to make a distinction between the academic life 
and the life of an artist. That's not to say that both are not beneficial, but I think that it can get confusing when a person's career and their livelihood is dependent upon producing something, a product, a product that must be sold in order for that person to live. And I think it gets really tricky and really hairy when you start getting into that. Yeah. So training, yes, training is very important. It could be self-training. It could be academic training, um, discipline. You know, you have to study your craft. But I would be careful um, in that definition of an artist. I have a poet friend who I admire greatly, a wonderful poet. And she once said, you know, there's people who write poetry and study poetry, and there are also people who are poets. Mm. So in my mind, it's someone who you're doing this because it's what you have to offer. Yeah. And and you mentioned training a couple of times. So, I mean, you kind of said there's academic, there's discipline. Is there any other type of training that artists receive throughout their life that may be perceived as a not training by others? I don't know. Oh, absolutely. I think that your eye is trained to notice certain things, and that's very helpful when it comes to art. Now, you don't have to have that to be an artist. But for example, um, I will say to my daughter, who's very much on that artist spectrum, as I like to call it, oh my gosh, look at the sky. Look, at it's so beautiful today. What do you notice about it? And she will point out the things about the sky. She's It's training her mind to look for beauty and to think what makes that beauty unique or striking. Um, if you can train someone to not see beauty as well, unfortunately, if your comments are not um, bringing their attention to things that are beautiful, they might see them or they might not. But we have to be kind of, uh, it, it certainly encourages it when you ask questions that now somebody wouldn't say, well, that's not an official training. But a lot of the training that I received as an artist came from having a father who, as a visual artist and a poet and a musician and a scholar, asked certain questions and called my attention to certain things. So while I didn't feel that I was in training to be an artist, in fact, he told me not to be an artist. Um, <laughs> he said, go earn yourself some money in this world and some ability <laughs> and don't be an artist. You know, mm -hmm. his actions were, do were training me to be an artist. It's also interesting, like this idea of nature versus nurture, like some people it's innately inside them to be observant and others there it's nurtured by their surroundings is kind mm -hmm. of what you've described and the people that they, they have around them. So my next question might feel like a full one, mm -hmm. but it'll help us frame the follow-up question. So what sort of potential do you believe that the arts and artists have to transform the life and culture of society? Mm, wow. Well, I think that there's tremendous potential there. Um, there's a, a quote, I think it's from jo George Bernard Shaw, which I, I've always laughed at and also, you know, has always caused me to raise my eyebrows that says, says something like, uh, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man, right? So um. I think that the artist's vision often takes in what's around it and says, no, this will not do. Something else has to be here. And then sets out through their art, whatever that art is, 
to put into the world what they don't see there. And to the extent that it can seem quite unreasonable to many people, you, you look at a system and you adapt yourself. That's how you maintain stability. That's how you, you know, get along. You don't look at the system and say, I need to rearrange this whole thing for myself. But artists do that. Hmm. So there's this notion that to be an artist, you have to be or have to have an attentive audience. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, there's people in the world that feel like they have to, there's a need to change something, mm-hmm. but that other people have to watch. Mm-hmm. For an example, this idea that I perform on stage and you have to listen or I paint a painting and you have to look at it. How do we get to this performance type model of art? And do you believe that it is benefiting or limiting the potential of art and artists? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I do think that, as I was touching upon earlier, that commercialism, materialism, all those things did really push us along this path where my art is a product that must be sold. Now, that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be sold or I shouldn't want to sell it. But when that becomes the main concern or when that starts to seep its way into my artistic practice, that's when we have a problem. So I do, I do think that it's very limiting. How many artists have been told, oh, that's wonderful what you're doing, but it would never sell. You know, so when we're talking about a person who has dedicated themselves to be an artist and to direct all of their attentions, not something that they're doing on the side, but they have committed themselves to bringing forth whatever art that they feel they are supposed to bring forth, then it is a tremendously limiting thing to always have to be thinking about it as a product or to have it go through some type of stage where it's changed or it's um, not coming from that pure place anymore. But I mean, as an artist myself, I have to also pay rent and live and eat food. And so, I mean, if I'm, if I'm going to make my music, I Mm -hmm. have to be able to sell it to survive. So then, so then how does, how do we kind of um, support, support those? Because then someone can easily say, I don't want to pay you. I shouldn't have to pay for the art. Right. So then that, that would be the argument to that. To right. what you just said. <laughs> That's when you get an agent. <laughs> Someone's thinking about it, but it's not you. <laughs> right, right, you're, right. You're the thing and the person whose brain is set up that way, which is also another service, you know, mm-hmm. That's it a is skill set. a valuable skill set. Mm-hmm. Someone uses the valuable skill set that God has endowed upon them and that they have felt called to do to figure out how that art works. I mean, this is in the ideal situation, of course. But yeah. you have someone saying, okay, wonderful. Um, hmm, you made this. Would you think about making that? And the whole across the board, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about art or if we're talking about selling toilet tissue, mm-hmm. you know, across the board, as we start to reevaluate what we have always considered prosperous, what we've considered to be a reasonable way to live in this world that in a way that feeds both of our material needs and our spiritual needs, I think that those questions are going to start to diminish or just Mm. naturally be overtaken by um, a more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Integrity will will be a a swelling up in all of the things we do. We can't single out the arts and say, I mean, of course, it's especially apparent in art, but I think it's part of the larger way we do things, period. 
you know, when we're realizing, do I really want to buy this candy bar when there, I know for a fact that there are people suffering um, to do the work somewhere on the other side of the world in an unfair way, you know, do I want to support that with my dollars? Right. And you'd also kind of touched on in another conversation that we had, this idea of critique Mm. um, that I think we've become so used to is the idea of, do I like it? If I don't like it, does it have value to Mm. me or does it have value at all? Mm. And again, we're back to value being how much of it can I sell? Right. And how much of it can I sell is not even related to the quality of the thing itself. Mm -hmm. It's related to the connections. Are you in touch with the people who know how to sell things? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I worked in uh, magazines years and years ago, um, and we had independent magazines. Um, it was really my brother's project, and I was a, a kind of sidekick on those projects. And I remember going into it, we certainly thought that the way to sell magazines was to create the best magazine there is. Um, and we spent a lot of time doing that, uh, only to find out that, no, <laughs> it's really about how you can sell them how many ads you can, you know, attract and and all of that. But does that mean that you abandon the quest for excellence? You know, so these these are the types of things I think that everyone is starting to think about. It's and now we have now we have uh, the internet where I don't have to think about any of that, right? I can create something and just put it out there in the world. And yes, there are still considerations, but it's changing. There's a change that's coming over the way we access art period the way we get Mm -hmm. in touch with it, the way we hear about it. Yeah. So let's elaborate a little bit more on this. Um, I want to talk more about your work as an artist and an educator, because you're really moving away from this Western performance model by focusing on creating opportunities for communal participation, experiential learning through your art exhibitions. You touched on this idea of exploring art as an invitation to the audience to accompany Mm -hmm. the artist. What inspires your communal approach? And do you feel like it could change or impact the narrative of how we treat artistry as a profession and interact with art in general? Mm, well, I mean, I'm not proud of it, but my communal approach was inspired mainly um, by boredom. You know, <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say there's a conference happening and the conference is delving into all of the topics that I'm deeply interested in. And I, you know, get myself together to get to this conference. I might have to pay money. I might have to get on a plane. I might have to stay in a hotel. You know, I've carefully selected my clothing, you know, and I have appeared at this conference ready to absorb this knowledge and to interact and exchange ideas. And I sit there in a room, bored out of my mind, (laughs) unable to absorb the information as it's being delivered to me. And it's being delivered in a, in a style, a classroom type style. I'm sitting in a hard seat. I look around the room. I don't see anything attractive to my eye. Everything is very sterile. Um, the person delivering the um, information might be someone who I admire deeply. And I have thousands of questions I'd love to ask, but I'm not able to do that in this setting. It wouldn't be appropriate. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, God, <laughs> you know, there's got to be another way. <laughs> yeah. so that's just one example. I can take that example pretty much to anywhere I go and I'm having that experience. So it's very easy to critique things. It's mm-hmm. very difficult to create something that addresses that critique. So in my own teaching practice in the classroom and beyond, I have tried and will always continue to try 
to get make spaces that allow that learning and knowledge to be exchanged and to be reflected upon in ways that don't feel stifling to a person such as myself. Now, a, a quote unquote normal person would feel everything that I felt or notice it or mm. notice say 50% of that because I, you know, I'm sensitive to those things and would just say, well, that's how it is and continue on and be fine and not be troubled a bit. Um, for whatever reason, I was not given the brain and the heart and the soul to do that. I was given one that says I will either run out of here with my hair on fire <laughs> after going through all the trouble to get there, or I will use this constructively to create a different model. Um, mm -hmm. and, to tr and that, you know, there's risk in that. Now I'm going to do something different. Now it's going to look kind of weird. Now, you know, people's eyebrows are going to raise. And, um, you know, so it's a tightrope that you walk, but I have found it very rewarding. Mm -hmm. Now, Bahala has said that the welfare of the people can be achieved through crafts and the true worth of artists and craftsmen should be appreciated for they advance the affairs of mankind. How do you view your experiential and communal approach to art um, as advancing the welfare of the people? And how do you believe that your approach will impact or change the way that artists and craftsmen are appreciated? Hmm. Okay, so the scenario that I just described to you um, is one that I have thought to myself, while others might not be feeling this to the extent that I am, if I create an environment or, or experiment with models that do things differently, how many more people would be attracted? And even the person who didn't notice those things as much or didn't bother them as much, how many hearts could be warmed by that? Right. And how would that bring to the surface contributions from them that perhaps we wouldn't have gotten? if we had been in this other model. So I do think that the Baha'i writings about art and about um, crafts and sciences, which are kind of together, right? Mm -hmm. The source of crafts, sciences, and arts is the power of reflection. And then um, Baha'u'llah asks us to make every effort to go into that ideal mind, he calls it, in order to find the pearls of wisdom and utterance that will promote the well-being and the harmony of all the kindreds of the earth, all the kindreds of the earth, not just the ones that I'm singling out, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that that high standard put together with that assurance that it can be done and it should be done is what will help us advance. And you have to try things. We've been given an open field to experiment. Mm -hmm. We haven't been told it has to be this way. It has to be that. I mean, there are some some few things that you should observe, but <laughs> like like what? What are those of things that we should observe? Well, you know, I've spoken about um, the uncomfortable and very rigid situations. Well, the opposite can also happen, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you do yeah. something different, and people think, "Oh, great, I'll do a headstand." You know, <laughs> so you want to try to, and I mean, I'm I'm laughing, but it does evoke in people a feeling of, wow, so anything, you know, sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. And we have to, of course, be moderate, right? And we have to be wise and we have to think about, is this promoting is harmony and unity? Am I just expressing something because I feel like expressing it? Or am, is this something that could be conducive to a greater understanding? And I think that's, you know, there's no um, art police that are going to come around and tell you that, but we kind of feel it when it goes past those <laughs> Mm -hmm. those, those bounds, those, those moderation 
um, yeah. or, thing, or things that are in harmony. But I think that that one is self-correcting. You know, when you start experimenting with using the arts in that way and you come across those those hiccups, yeah, I think that that is self-correcting, that it's to be expected, but as the unity of that group that's um, having that experience grows, as people become excited about whether it was, um, you know, whatever the, ga- the occasion was for people to be together, um, I think that that begins to self-correct. I think also like it's the Baha'i writings kind of give us room for um, diversity because what is acceptable here in, in my community in Vancouver, Canada is different to what would be acceptable in a community in like, say, Papua New Guinea or I don't know, Namibia or something like uh, so it kind of allows for this. There's there's a bit of room for self-correction depending on the environment that you're in. And it kind of kind of ties into my next question. Although as Baha'is, we understand art to be a power of the Holy Spirit, the guardian of the faith, Shoghi Effendi, has clearly stated that at this early stage of the faith, there is no such thing as Baha'i art, music, architecture, or culture. These will doubtless emerge in the future as a natural outgrowth of a Baha'i civilization. So it kind of talks to this idea of freedom. Mm-hmm. So what sort of freedoms do you believe that this gives artists in the Baha'i community? I think that if our freedom is tempered by what we know from the same Baha'i writings that is granting us the freedom, then mm-hmm. we're on the right path. Because true freedom um, in the Baha'i writings is described as adherence to the laws of God. Yeah. To the best of our ability. So if I'm not supposed to transgress certain laws, and I know I'm well grounded in that, that's going to come across in whatever contribution I make artistically. Right? And I'm the only one that can really, really, I mean, other people can say what they want, but I'm the one that's striving to do that and it's a high high standard you know it's it's quite a high standard but it can trying to follow a high standard can only uplift us. yeah the, the house of justice spoke really plainly about how the um, degeneration of morals and all of those things have impacted music and art and literature um, there was a letter that speaks about how um, because of this degeneration that even music and art and literature, which are supposed to represent and inspire the noblest sentiments and highest aspiration and should be a source of comfort and tranquility. Um, The letter speaks about how they've now become the mirrors of the soiled hearts of this confused, unprincipled and disordered age. So I think the guidelines for us are in these different writings that we have that we can reflect on ourselves and say, hmm, how can I honor the artistic impulse along the, these guidelines? So it's back to that jazz analogy where it's improvisation within a set structure. It's as so though it's like the, that art is, is the mechanism or the tool for us as artists to promote the welfare of humanity. It's kind of coming back to this. I, what you kind of, I'm just trying to tie it into what you'd mentioned earlier about, um, self-correcting and moderation. And, you know, within the African-American 
um, visual artists tradition, there's been this ongoing debate f- kind of forever, I would say. Um, and it came to a head in the 60s and 70s when it was, you know, the civil rights movement was happening and artists amongst themselves were saying, hey, is it okay for me to sit in a studio and paint while other people are on the streets pushing for these rights that we know that we deserve? And there was a big debate like, no, you know, the artist has to be out there, has to be an activist. And there was other people saying, well, no, my art is my activism. You know, even if I'm not painting something that's considered revolutionary, the fact that I am devoting my attention and time to perfecting my craft is itself a revolutionary act. And that's a debate that you can still hear happening, but it's always been a question. Is it okay? Is it enough? Is it, you know, am I contributing? Well, the Baha'i faith astoundingly gives us a very clear answer. It says mm-hmm. that, yes, you are actually worshiping. It's the same as worshiping when you are creating your art. So that is a tremendous um, message that it is worthwhile and, you know, you don't have to be, you're, you're making a change. Yeah. And it, it, this beautifully ties into my next question, because as Baha'is, we understand that art is the power of the Holy Spirit working through the soul. And this is one way that we are able to perceive the divine reality of things in existence. Abdu'l-Bahá said these words. Mm. Do you believe that the ability to perceive divine reality can only be experienced by the soul creator of the art, or can it also be experienced by those who are the audience receiving the art, and how so? Yeah, it can be experienced by any person. It can be experienced by a three-year-old child. You know, it is there for us. I do think that artists are particularly interested and focused on experiencing it and on portraying that experience. But it's certainly, in my opinion, not limited to the artist um, because that would be going back to a congregational model even um, whose time, who had a time that it was needed, for example, if the preacher was the only person who could read, right? And they would read mm. the Bible or the Quran or whatever it was, and through them, others would be enlightened. And I don't think that, um, I think that, that that time period has come and gone, that it was useful and served a purpose. But no, it's not just the brilliant artist who will then shed their radiance upon the rest of the people. I do think that everyone has that ability. However, how much time and attention is being given to it does make a difference in the degree to which it comes through. I'd love to take this opportunity to chat about the graceful integration of the arts into diverse activities, which the Universal House of Justice has called on us to do as as individuals and as a community. Do you believe that everyone has the capacity to integrate art and creativity into their daily lives? And what do you think it means to do this gracefully? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I could provide some ungraceful uh, (laughs) (laughs) examples. (laughs) Well, no, I think that um, to do it gracefully, we have so many hangups, you know, we're so afraid of critique. I mean, I myself have in the past, I've kind of trained myself out of it, but you know, I wouldn't dare to try to put a pen to paper or try to sing a song without first the disclaimer, oh, I'm terrible. Yeah. You know, oh, I can't sing. I'm an awful, you know, oh, you know, I'm not. A, I mean, and it's just normal. 
it's just a natural thing, but I don't think we fully realize how we've been conditioned to think if I'm not the best at it, or if I'm not going to win a scholarship or be on television for it, then I shouldn't do it. You know, um, it's really, and, and again, it's back to that Western model of the one brilliant, you know, perf perfect who does, person who does it perfectly, the prima donna ballerina, you know, um, versus we come together and we do it and it sounds good when we all do it yeah because we're supporting each other the great singer's voice might rise a little higher and the person who sings because it makes them happy their voice might find a little comfortable niche you know, yeah hanging on to the great singer's voice but who are we to say i mean it's it's really sad when a person wouldn't sing a song because they're not the best singer in the room so this competitive idea that i must be excellent at all things and i'm going to be compared to everyone else who's ever done it when we're like eight people in a room that want to sing a song so to summarize you would say that everyone has the capacity to integrate art and creativity into their lives oh yeah yes. everybody yes. <laughs> are there examples that you can provide surrounding the graceful integration of the arts into the life of community let's focus on what works and what doesn't i know you said earlier you can talk about what doesn't what is not graceful right but um i'm sure you have some beautiful examples of graceful integration and, and that you've that you've seen firsthand i absolutely have and there is an artist uh, named lloyd lawrence who lives in new york city and he's a poet he's a visual artist he's a curator of experiences um and i have really learned the most about this from watching him um because he's able to think about the people who will be coming to whatever the event is or whatever the, the gathering is and what is the object of that gathering and then how can it be supplemented with art in a way that is natural and moving. It might be a little surprising, an eyebrow might raise, but people can relax into it. And I would say the answer to the question, which is how can we do it, is I think we can start by looking for people who have been interested in this for a while, people like Lloyd Lawrence um, and others, and learn from, look at what they have done and see how that might work in your own affairs, your own get-togethers, which is what I've done. I've borrowed heavily or even, you know, um, have had the pleasure of working with someone like Lloyd, who's really a mentor to me in that way. Um, and once you see it, you say, oh, gosh, that's awesome. That works. And you can use it and always be looking to change it depending on the situation. Don't look for one way to do it. And then you're just going to run that way each time where it's going to be, okay, prayer, song, prayer, prayer in Spanish, speech, <laughs> read this. You know, anytime you find yourself settling into that, think, hmm, is this effective? Is it working? Or am I just replacing one rigid form with another? So that receptivity, tapping into your own receptivity and thinking about ways that you're allowing space for other people's receptivity and other people's reflections to enter into that space as well. Hmm. I, I want to also just take this opportunity and just take a moment to talk about this idea of accompaniment and uh, building capacity because artists are frequently asked to perform in communities. Um, I myself as a musician and as a Baha'i, I've been asked on many occasions to perform. But there's this idea that I think resonates with a lot of artists that we may call burnout. <laughs> and um, it makes 
kind of artists not want to participate any longer. Are there any tools that artists you think in your experience can apply when they perform that also inherently builds capacity in, in the community and has this kind of mutual um, spirit of support and accompaniment? Yes. And I think I have to clarify when I say artists, this was pointed out to me recently as well. There are artists and there are people who have spent a lot of time looking at how to integrate the arts. That's different from me saying, can you please come to my house and at 325 to 333, do your art thing, <laughs> right? I'm asking you to come and render a performance. And while a performance is wonderful sometimes and it could be just what's called for, I'm not incorporating that into the whole thing. Yeah. I'm not consulting with you about how I'm just wanting, I'm just trying to assign it to you or I'll say, okay, you do the event. Here's the event. You do it. You, you know, you put it together how you think would be great. And this comes from, again, this kind of corporate model. So it's a, it's a very um, kind of superficial attempt. Yeah. It's not inviting you to be part of that process. Either I'm offloading the whole thing to you, you do it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm asking you to come and patch yourself into a 10-minute period. That you've planned. That, yeah. Right, that fits my thing. Be inspired from 328 to 320, you know. <laughs> yeah. But there's not a behind-the-scenes integration. Think of it like people who are interested in diversity on film. Okay, well, we have our Black actor. But who behind the camera comes from a different background mm. than, say, the, the dominant white background or whatever it is, right? So it's going beyond that superficial surface level um, um, inclusion that we sometimes try to do. And it's funny because as a African-American woman, I have often been a token black person in many, many situations, including in Baha'i situations. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've also been heartened to find myself as the token artist now. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a step up or a step down. Moving from one minority <laughs> to the other. <laughs> We're able to check all the boxes. But yeah. I said, oh, wow, this is awesome. I have not been invited here because I'm African-American. I've been invited here because I'm an artist. Mm. And there's an interest in having that in the planning process. You know, I'll laugh about it, but it's actually heartening to see at least some level of understanding Yeah, that Artists should be, an, and, not, and again, someone who has studied how to gracefully integrate arts is different than an artist who does a particular thing, and that's where all of their attentions have been, de- have been devoted. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, it does. But I think that the, all, everyone in a community who uh, is, uh, if you're known to be a creative person, yes, we know that burnout feeling. And I think the burnout comes from no one attempting to raise their own capacity, just inviting you in to do the thing that you've mm-hmm. done. Hey, you did it great last time. Can you do it again? You know? Yeah. So then how do you, uh, I just, I have this question. I get this question all the time. And I don't <laughs> yeah. want to like, I don't want to over, what do you call yeah. it? Uh, well, tires. Well, but but well, how well. do you take, how do you get this like middle-aged whatever person yeah. who just doesn't <laughs> believe that they have any creative capacity inside of them to believe in themselves that they actually do you don't you don't want to belabor it but do you know what i mean yes i know exactly what you mean and i don't think that you can all you know if that is your goal you can finish before you start Mm -hmm. um i think that the more 
you work with the willing and when there's a hearing ear, those two people come together yeah. and create something, the more you're, you're really in a position as a pioneer. You're pioneering what art could be. Mm-hmm. And it's not even, you're not even, you yourself don't know, right? So you're exploring. You're saying, I know there's something greater than this. I know I have to push forward. I will not get, you know, this other person to sign on to what I'm doing or to stop trying to put it on me. Yeah. To, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, those are congregational models, right? Even performers themselves, we have that within us. We'll get there and say, all right, I can't hear you. Say it louder. You know, as if it's up to me. Mm-hmm. to make you bring forth your creativity. Right, yeah. As long as we're looking at it like that, we're just going to stay the same way we've been. Yeah. Right? I'm not a, it's, we're not here to MC to rouse you into some type of creative moment. Mm-hmm. We're here to spread something new. There's a new thing. We ourselves don't know what it is, but if we have experienced even a drop of it, we'll always be back trying to make it happen again. And we've seen this happen in in a holy day situation and devotional gatherings or in the other core activities that Baha'is around the world are engaged in, where we're inviting people, whether they have any interest in a faith background, whether they come from any faith background or none at all, mm-hmm. we're saying this is about the human spirit. You know, yes, I'm a Baha'i, I believe in these particular, you know, I believe in one God for all people, and I have this particular set of beliefs, but I'm interested in creating a spiritual experience for anyone who's a human being, you know? Yeah. And I think that as we do that, we create new models that build and we, we have to stop trying to um, make those who are unable or unwilling to see on board with it. And one more thing I'd like to add, I think the problem comes when the artist is overburdened, as you have mentioned, or I can't inspire anyone if I'm not inspired. Mm. Right? So if I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I tried to have this conversation before and it didn't work out and I'm dragging my feet coming to this thing out of a sense of duty, which we have all found ourselves in that place, I think, at some point um, or another, yeah. then that's, you know, now we're just going through the motions. But if I'm really thinking, okay, oh, how, you know, what, what are the elements? How can this be done in the most graceful way possible? And how can I experiment only enough that the space permits? I can't do the thing that I think would be wonderful because this is not the setting for that, but I can do this. So always pushing those boundaries, always looking for ways to, to find the right fit. That's excellent advice for artists and communities out there. Um, We've come toward the end of our episode of Cloud9 and our time with you. But before we go, I just want maybe close your eyes and picture what a community looks like when they've gracefully integrated the arts. Like what kind of attitudes and capacities um, and qualities does this community have? First of all, I think that we will be more excited and inspired to even gather. <laughs> we won't have a sense of dread. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the exact word that was I was looking for the historic dread. Eminent <laughs> <laughs> dread. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Well, and you know, I, I you know, not to circle back, but I went into these things because I didn't want to sit around feeling that way. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think I was given 
the brain and the heart and the soul that I was given to sit around feeling bad in places where I should be feeling good. And it's not all about how you feel, but there is something to be said for, hey, how can we make this better? How can this be more enjoyable? It shouldn't feel this way. I want to be here, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when we start to find those ways, they won't always, I think there's millions and trillions of ways that that can happen. And as we start to have those experiences, they're just going to catch like wildfire. Mm. They already have in certain ways. It's just that our fire burns a little bit and then gets out, <laughs> put out. You yeah. Know? yeah. But I, I think that when you have experienced that creative unity, that thing that happens, uh, you have no choice but to try to capture it again. And you start to study it. How can, what happened in that room at that moment? That was magical. How can mm. we have that happen again? Yeah. You know? And of course, we're all experiencing different things. But when you have people who have from the lowest level said, oh, that was really, that I really enjoyed that. That was different. That was nice. All the way to someone who says, this is the best experience I've ever had in this setting, whether it's a classroom or a devotional gathering or whatever it is, that's when they, you don't have to ask them to think of ways to do it themselves. They start generating those same kind of things. Mm, mm -hmm. And they're going to look very different. They're going to look different based on our different cultures and expectations. And that's going to be fantastic. Yeah. It's not going to be coming out, oh, in this one way that comes from this one background. Right. It's going to be this wonderful coming together. And I've seen glimpses of it. And it's just, it's just really, really, really inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think that we will be more engaged and enthusiastic and it will be so much easier. We won't have to drag ourselves to do things <laughs> that we know are right. <laughs> oh man, I'm hopeful, um, but I'm excited. I'm excited to be part of this learning process. And I've been incredibly inspired by our conversation today. And I really am sure listeners will be as well reflecting on this conversation and some of the questions um, that we reflected on, as well as hopefully asking new questions and contributing to the progress of this, the graceful integration of the arts in, in community life and our, in, in our own lives as individuals. So Liz, can't thank you enough for your time today. So honored to have you as our guest artist and speaker and uh, all the best with your future. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for asking those questions. I'll be reflecting on some of them. Uh, I'll continue <laughs> awesome. that reflection on my own, of course. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you again. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Bahaiteachings.org, where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles. <laughs>